two books to introduce to you. One is Recovering from Toxic Cures, and the other is Soul Healers. How many people here would you consider, you know, just looking at the genetics of things, would you consider yourself to have straight hair? How many of you have curly hair? Okay, this will cure both sides. <laughs> <laughs> if, if your hair's curly, it'll straighten it, and if it's straight, it'll curl it. The, uh, the book is a critique of psychology and the social sciences, but the most important thing is the little stamp down here, the part your teachers left out. Amen. Now, Toxic Cures is contained within this book. This book is so thick because you'll want to wear it as a bulletproof vest. <laughs> and it'll, uh, this, there's not another book like this anywhere, I'm telling you, that is so, that so thoroughly demolishes something that, a devil's scheme, amen. It's not the whole story of the, the, what the devil's doing, but I'll tell you, what he's doing that concerns this book, this book takes care of it, amen. Soul healers. Amen. I'm going to apologize real quick here. I'm going to read a lot because I've got a lot of quotes. I want you to hear what they say about it, okay? You know, contained in the message of the cross is the simple fact God loves us, He cares so much about us, and His attention is so focused upon us that He laid down His life for us. But that's not the whole message of the cross. It's not just a revelation of God's essential nature. The cross is also the revelation of man's essential nature. Something happened when Jesus came. It challenged something inside of people and revealed what was really in there. Because as we all know, when he came and did nothing but good, heal the sick, raise the dead, did all those sort of things. Uh, they crucified him for his trouble. You know, I'll tell you this revelation that there is something down inside of man that is opposed to God, not just ignorant of God, but actually opposed to God. This, this revelation is really that we want our own space. We, we want our own will to be done. This revelation of man's essential nature, it showed that it's not just ignorant of God, but that there is something that when our will is challenged, we, we don't like it. Amen. And encountering his presence in the body does something similar, actually. I, there's many of us here that can testify that when we finally saw the revelation of the body and what it took to commit yourself into the hands of other tangible flesh and blood people and everything, all these fears and doubts and everything start rising up. Man, what am I, what am I going to do? Because in a sense, it challenges human autonomy. So Jesus' life and death didn't just expose ignorance, but a fundamental resistance. And that fundamental resistance 
It's self-preservation that we should have a right to our own space. But it doesn't usually come uh, in, in just real stark theological terms, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> it comes, like I say, in a clash of wills and desires. And truly coming to God unavoidably manifests this conflict. If you have never had that conflict, you have not come to God. Now, the fallen human nature, obviously, uh, uh, it manifests itself in different levels of intensity depending on how it's been cultivated and depending on how many external factors restrain it. We see this even at the cross. I mean, there were those who walked on the road in front of the cross and looked and just kept on walking, just ignored it. There were those who, who uh, looked, saw the sign above that said uh, King of the Jews, and they thought that was kind of stupid. Uh, there were those that got a little closer and rolled dice, played games beneath it. There were those who spit on him. There were those who cursed him. There were those who threw spears at him. Amen. Amen. There were those who prophesied, you know, somebody has to die so that my space can remain secure. And there were even some who, when they saw that they had betrayed the Lord and saw what they had done, decided to maintain their autonomy no matter what, and went out and by their own will killed themselves. So when we talk about the revelation of human nature, it can be revealed on all levels of intensity, but the core of it is always the same because the seed of that human nature that Brother Zach has shared is, is that we want to be our own God by our own knowledge. Therefore, when we realize that there's something in human nature that resists God, we then realize why Jesus said, this is the judgment. This is the summation. This is the judgment. Light has come, but men love darkness rather than light. You know, the judgment is that there is something in human nature that resists God. It's it's wrong. Now, this isn't just a theological proposition that we need to confess. I believe in man's total depravity. It's something we need to experience. We catch a glimpse of something inside of us. That's the need part of that fertile soil. Human nature is not essentially good. But Jesus declared in John 16 that when he, the spirit of truth, has come, then he will convict the world of sin. It cannot be just an intellectual affair. We have to have an encounter with the spirit. And when we really do, when it's genuine, we will feel, huh, I want to push it away. That's that fallen human nature. Only an encounter with God's spirit can allow us to genuinely confess along with Paul in Ephesians 2 that we are, quote, by nature children of wrath. And the only way out is to open ourselves up to that conviction that we're, we're guilty. And uh, 
This may sound like a, a theological proposition, but I'll tell you, anyone who really encounters the Spirit of God, they will see that the cross is a revelation of their own nature. But there's a strategy of the enemy to blur and deny the reality of the message of the cross. We've already seen a part of uh, how he blurs God's essential nature through the, the rationalism, Hellenism, amen, that just made him into an abstract logical deduction. But what we're going to talk about is a way that he blurs human nature, amen? We're going to see that a scientific, therapeutic approach to sin is merely a form of spiritual euthanasia, simply a more pleasant way into eternal death. It will anesthetize the pain of guilt, but it will not cure the sin. It anesthetizes guilt by convincing you deep in your heart, in one way or another, you're not ultimately responsible for what you've done. Peter in Acts 2 and 23 directly tells the people at Pentecost, all the crowd that gathered, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 36, he tells them, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. Now, those people, this is 50 days after Passover. Some of the people may have actually been present, but that's not what he was really getting at. And I doubt, I'm sure none of them actually had actively crucified the Lord. But what Peter was speaking there was an anointed word of conviction revealing the essence of human nature. You would crucify the Lord if you had the opportunity and if you were brought up in a certain way. Amen. He's speaking a convicting word. And what happened when someone had the courage to say, you have done it, you're responsible. The Bible says they were pricked in their heart. They received the word of God like Brother Zach said. Amen. They were baptized, filled with the Spirit, and God added to the church daily. That is the means into the body, and the devil wants to cut it off. He wants to, to take the true attack weapons of the sword of the Spirit, like Josiah said earlier, and give us an artificial word, something that doesn't really pierce all the way to the core. Amen. What we're talking about is a major, major blockage into the body of Jesus Christ. Amen. And in its simplest form, we could call it the medicalization of sin. Men aren't guilty, they're sick. This is a fundamental transformation in understanding human behavior as it has been made an object of science. At the end of this, I'm going to give a qualification, okay? I, I, uh, have you ever heard those advertisements uh, that are either selling a franchise or selling a stock? And, and at the end, they have to do what all the lawyers say. And it, and they have a computer that takes 
all the spaces out between the words. Well, that's what I would need to do to give all the qualifications for this. But I'm going to give a qualification at the end, but I don't have time. Josiah's going to cut me off, and I'm not going to be able to, to give them all. So I'll blame it on him. Amen. Amen. But this medicalization of sin is a fundamental transformation in understanding human behavior when it is made an object of science. It is essentially a changing of gods that has taken place in our culture. Amen. Because as, as the University of Chicago's Richard Weaver said, science has now become a God term. Has anybody recently heard some phrase like follow the science? Anything like that? You know, a radical shift has occurred when man became a subject of scientific observation. His behavior would be seen as the result of prior causes prior to his behavior. His will did not freely choose, but rather prior causes determined his choice. Basically, the root causes of man's behavior would be sought outside his essential nature, which was deemed essentially good or at least neutral. I'm going to back some of this up, and the book backs it up completely. I know I'm just asserting these things right now. Basically, human behavior now will be corrected through scientifically defined procedures. The somatogenic school, soma means body, that, that thinks our behavior is controlled by certain hormones and bodily functions, things like that. Amen. It corrects the problems with pharmaceuticals or surgeries or electrical interventions, hooking you up to your brain, hooking up to your brain. Uh, the psychogenic school corrects it by various forms of psychotherapy or psychotropic drugs. We don't deny actual brain disorders, things like that. You know, we're in, we, we believe that things can happen by accidents or even genetics, things like that. But we're talking about an approach through science that ultimately denies you have crucified the Lord of glory. They say, well, it's all because of prior causes. Amen. Socially, in this science of man, man's environment is studied, remedies are found in social engineering, usually through government programs. Individually, human nature would be dealt with through either psychotherapy or pharmacological means or genetic engineering or some other scientific technique. I'd like to just very briefly take an aside and deal just very briefly with the pharmacological cure to just give you something to think about. Scientific American in 2013 said one in six Americans are taking psychiatric drugs antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-psychotics. In 2022, 41 million Americans are on prescription amphetamines alone. NBC, ABC, CBS all reported that by 2016, one in six were on antidepressants alone. By January 2022, in the pandemic, 
Now it's one in four on psychiatric drugs. That's a 50% increase in six years. In 2014, 50% more people died from psychiatric medicine overdoses than from heroin. From 1999 to 2014, these deaths increased fourfold. The wonder drug Prozac came out in 1988. 30 years later, by two, that's to treat depressions and things like that. 30 years later, by 2018, one in five would be taking the psychiatric meds, but it included one in 20 children. Since 1987, psychiatric, this is after the advent of the new wonder drugs, psychiatric disability in 19, since 1987 has tripled. Children disabled by psychiatric problems has increased 30-fold. Children taking powerful antipsychotic drugs tripled after the mid-90s into the second decade of the 21st century, but the rise wasn't due to a sudden epidemic of schizophrenia and things like that. It was due to the fact that these psychotropic drugs are now being prescribed to control children's behavior, to make them passive so that they can be educated in the factory government schools. Amen. Studies show, now show that antidepressants can cause chronic depression, tardive dysphoria. Yale researchers say that antidepressants more than double the shift to bipolar disorder. People start taking these for a minor problem and a subset of them get much worse. Let's just sum it up by saying, let's at least keep wondering about the wonder drugs, okay? Now we're not gonna get into the pharmacological deal, but I wanna talk about the counterfeit free will. If all choices are determined by prior causes, then free will becomes an illusion. It really isn't you making the choices. One recent scientific approach to dismissing free will as an illusion was explained by Philip Regal, a believer in this, who summarizes the approach behind molecular biology and recombinant DNA research. That's called genetic engineering. By the way, just two weeks ago, I read in the news, they have finally mapped the entire human genome, just two weeks ago, a three-decade search. And their conclusion at the end of the article, this will provide unprecedented control over the genetic makeup of people. Control. Regal, in explaining how this all works, prior causes, says that the social sciences and humanities will ultimately be reduced to biology. Well, you know, we, we've got all these things. Well, really, it's biology. It's our biological network that's causing this. That's our, the prior cause. But then he says, remember, he, he, he believes in this. Biology will be in turn reduced to chemistry. Well, of course, the reason these hormones do this and that is because of chemical reactions that take place. But chemistry will be reduced to physics. 
Well, the reason these molecules do that is because certain laws of physics, positive attracts negative and such like that. And all of this will reduce to simple, simple deterministic laws that will allow precise prediction at all levels of life. On the other hand, in a similar vein, one of the more blunt confessions among social scientists and psychologists is the assertion by Harvard's B.F. Skinner. American Psychological Association said he was the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. His words, Skinner says, it is essential to the application of scientific method to the study of human behavior that the controlling hypothesis be that man is not free. His behavior is the result of some prior causes, some childhood trauma, some subconscious influences, some chemical imbalances, and so on. He may be sick, but he's not guilty. Now, what we're talking about here is when man becomes a specimen of science, okay? This is, this is what comes from it. As scholar of history Roger Smith asserted, with the rise of scientific naturalism, which asserted the universal scope of, hum of the scientific method and the adequacy of science to explain everything, clerics, the church, were goaded by scientists into relinquishing their authoritative statements about nature. All of a sudden, the church isn't near as important in explaining the human condition. Now, science is the one who needs to step to the forefront. As Harvard's David Landis said, this world, which has never before been ready to universally accept any of the universal faiths offered for its salvation, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, whatever, it is apparently now prepared to embrace the religion of science and technology without reservation. Landis explained that the primary assumption of this new religion was, quote, that man's capacity to know and do is infinite. We have here the age-old heresy of man worshiping himself. There's been a changing of the gods. I mean, hopefully I'm not having to... The, the, this, the books bring this completely home. I hope everybody can believe that all of a sudden science is extremely important to the modern mind. Amen. Jeffrey Burke Satinover pointed out, he's got a PhD in both physics and psychology, pointed out that, this is all a quote, that the analytical scientific framework that has slowly emerged in the West over the six or seven centuries since the beginning of the Renaissance has yielded the era of psychological man. This analytical view, rather than making an appeal to traditional theological understandings, seeks to fit the understandings of the ultimates in human nature within a scientific framework. A primary goal, Satinover says, of any modern scientific psychology has been to understand human behavior, including those areas that touch on morals, meaning, purpose, and value, 
Not in terms of ultimate purpose, but in terms of prior causes. This, according to Satinover, is, along with the technology that derives from it, the most powerful transformation of human thought bequeathed to modernity since the Renaissance. There is a fundamental change in the way people view even themselves. The individual now only imagines that he has made a free moral choice. In reality, in this scientific view, he has merely mechanically followed prior causes that have automatically determined his behavior. If all causes are beyond human moral culpability because they're beyond his own choice, then once this revelation can come to a person, he gets free of the sense of moral guilt. That's the, the way it works. Princeton and, and Stanford University's Richard Rorty explained that the new perspective that Freud and others had been instrumental in introducing, namely the view that the springs of human behavior should be understood from a demoralized perspective. And when he uses that term, he doesn't mean, you know, we think of demoralized, I'm all sad, I'm all defeated. He means without morals. There, the, the human condition is no longer to be understood within a rubric of morality. Amen. Now it's to be understood just by all these causes, the, these, the, the prior causes, whether biological or, or, or childhood trauma, whatever it is. But it's not a moral statement about people. Peter didn't say, though, you crucified Jesus because your mother didn't love you unconditionally. He said, you. This is a blockage to the half of the message of the cross. Sin is a moral term. Its etymological root is the word for guilty. Behavior seen as a result of prior causes is an affliction. Looking at the illness metaphor then, illness is not a moral term. Sin requires repentance, a response from a free moral agent. Illness does not. It can be rectified by therapy. Therapy does not affect morality, only our morale. It makes us feel good. Sin involves who we are. Illness is what has happened to us. I want you to see that there is a historical reason for this most transformative change of thought. This afternoon, you'll get a much bigger picture. Amen, as Brother Evan shares. Amen, but I'd like to preempt him just, he knows I'm doing this, he's agreed. I want to introduce to you Jean-Jacques Rousseau briefly. He was an 18th century thinker that has been profoundly influential. Will Durant says that he is the most influential thinker from a century that was the most influential century on posterity that there's been. Amen. He, in essence, is the formulator, the father of the entire modern 
educational movement. Rousseau was raised as a believing Christian. He was taught, he, he, he wanted to be a minister. They say that he was greatly moved by religious services. He eventually converted to Catholicism. He was raised Protestant. He, he was converted to Catholicism. But Rousseau had a problem. He had a problem staying within the moral boundaries of Christianity. And he wound up having an affair with his uh, catechism minute, uh, mentor in, that the Catholic Church had assigned for him. And he set about, instead of repenting over what he did, he set about, whether he realized it or not, seeking some way to rationalize his behavior. And so he abandoned Christianity. So much later, he wrote in his rather famous book, Confessions, that by the time of his 30s, he found himself in Paris, and he was walking in a park. He wrote all this down, walking in a park one day, and decided to take a nap. And while he was asleep, he had an astounding vision that caused him to wake up in tears. And he had a revelation. And the revelation was, Rousseau's revelation was man is essentially good and only needs to be educated properly to flower into his perfection. Apostasy, the first thing apostasy does to a person is blind them to their own nature. In his apostasy, all of a sudden, man is essentially good. His famous words that he penned after this, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Not chains of his own nature, but because he's born free, but chains of his environment. This started the whole modern educational movement. Amen. Now I want to expand a little bit on the dynamic about how and why uh, Rousseau got this revelation. Jesus warned because lawlessness, which in the Greek is anomia, is increased, most people's love will grow cold. By New Testament times, the Greek word for lawlessness often carried a technical sense beyond just a nomos, no law. Instead, it had come to signify rebellion against law, resistance against law. Gutbrod writes that in many cases, the inner force of onomia is probably supplied by the more general sense such as rebellion or revolt against God. The Amplified therefore translates 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7, the mystery of lawlessness, that is the hidden principle of rebellion against constituted authority, is already at work. So the time of lawlessness, anomia, is not one of just ignorance, but one that rejects known moral laws, known moral norms. It, it, there's, it's something that resists, not just something that is ignorant. And therefore, it's tied to the notion, anomia is tied to the notion of apostasy, which means a rejecting. We've heard how the Word of God operates. We're going to talk about how bad it is when we don't really receive the word of God. There is a potential for something to really go wrong when God's word goes forth and we brush it off. 
Paul warns, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. He's talking about the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to him. That day will not come unless the falling away, which is the Greek apostasy, comes first and the man of lawlessness, anomia, is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Paul speaks here, obviously, of the revealing of Antichrist spirit. Now, we all like to think of this as some extraordinarily evil spirit beyond any human experience. But I'd like to caution that the Antichrist spirit, in reality, is simply the fallen human nature, but as it is revealed when completely released. There's no restraints on it anymore. When it is finally conforming itself fully to the lie of the one who first planted the seed of that nature within humankind. Every one of us has the potential to participate in this release. Should we finally break all restraints, internal and external? We can all be a son of perdition. Who was the other, the only other entity called a son of perdition was uh, Judas, who betrayed the Lord. Amen. And remember, John, he specifically and explicitly says, the antichrists are those who came out from us. Amen. People who rejected the bonds of love that God was offering to them. Paul emphasizes in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, now the Spirit speaks clearly that in the latter times some will abandon the faith, that's the verb form of apostasy, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Notice that doctrines of demons and, and, and all of this come through people who sear their conscience, their, the, their knowledge with God. The word of God comes to them, and somehow or another they push it off, and it opens them up to something else. And we could give a lot of examples. Let me just give one. I think I may have given this last year or the year before, but let me just read real briefly from a, a paper written uh, a, a, by someone describing uh, the parable of the vine and the branches in John 15. Nowhere does Jesus express more clearly the necessity of union with himself than in the parable of the vine and the branches in which he calls himself the vine and us the branches. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. And so, Christ says, without me you can do nothing. We feel all of our iniquity, but at the same time rejoice over our redemption. We can, for the first time, love God, who previously appeared to us as an offended ruler, but now appears as a forgiving father. But if it could feel, the branch would not only look upwards to the husbandman, but would also feel itself most closely linked with the vine and with the branches which have sprung from it. And it would love the other branches. 
Thus, union with Christ consists in the most intimate, most vital communion with him in having him before our eyes and in our hearts. And at the same time, we turn our hearts to our brothers who he laid down his life for. That was written by a 17-year-old before he went to college and studied Hegel. His name was Karl Marx. Amen. Amen. Doctrines of demons indeed come through apostasy. And this is what any of us, if we don't recognize our human nature and do everything we can to bring it to death inside of ourselves by receiving the word of God, any of us, we have that potential inside of us. Daniel eleven thirty one and 12 and 11 both refer to the abomination of desolation. Daniel 8 and 13 speaks of the transgression of desolation. Here, abomination is, is, is a transgression, which in the Hebrew is pesa. The theological word book of the Old Testament says, the masculine noun pesa designates those who reject God's authority. Swanson's Dictionary of Biblical Languages describes Pessa as a revolt, a rising up in defiance of authority. It's not ignorance, but rejecting the light. Now, I want to talk, Brother Zach mentioned this. Psalms 36 also uses the word Pessa. But the, 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 when the King James and New King James was being translated, they simply could not understand what these verses were trying to say. Because the word, they also use the word oracle here. And oracle in, in the Bible, it's, a, it's not just somebody talking. It's someone speaking with, with great authority. Amen. It's someone that almost always in the Old Testament is tied to a prophet speaking the word of God. And, and they couldn't quite put things together. So this is how they translated the verse. An oracle within my heart, that is in David's heart, writing the Psalms, concerning the transgression, Pessa, of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Amen. But the reality of it, as Kyle and Delish point out, is the Hebrew does not allow for this, transla this translation. Because Pessa is actually the subject of the verse. But they couldn't figure out, you know, wait a minute, what's this talking about? But they say that the way it actually ought to be translated is an oracle of transgression has the ungodly in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it, this oracle of transgression, flatters him in his own eyes. I'm essentially good in order that he may become truly guilty and he may hate. So the New American Standard translates the verse, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The English Standard Version renders the verse, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. When we reject the word, we enter the realm of delusion. Kyle and Delish explain the full import of the verse. 
Transgression says to the ungodly with all the solemn air of the prophet or the philosopher, for it has set itself within his heart in the place of God and the voice of his conscience. This is the mechanism that goes on inside people who reject the word. The apostate possesses this inspiration of iniquity as the contents of his heart so that the fear of God has no place therein. When we don't love the truth of God's word, we are subject into falling into great delusion. And every one of us has in its potential form an essential nature that tends towards this spirit of self-deception that yields the antichrist spirit. Amen. But if we receive the word, as Brother Zach was telling us this morning, it brings true conviction. And conviction says, I'm guilty. But conviction is a twofold word. It also brings, I have the conviction I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It always, the convicting word of God will always produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, now we're going to make another shift. I've got a 10-speed transmission here. Amen. I want to talk a little bit of history. Professor of philosophy George Gusdorf of the University of Strasbourg points out that after the fall of Alexander the Great and the decline of Athens, the center of gravity of culture shifted to Pergamum and its African counterpart, Alexandria. Three factors ultimately distinguished Pergamum from all other cities. First, it became the model for Rome's privatized bureaucratic setup in dealing with its provinces. This, y'all all heard of publicans in the Bible? This is where it started. A publican was a, basically a private citizen who uh, tax farmed. He, he, would, he, he would collect the taxes he got a take of it, and he sent the rest of it to Rome. This started in Pergamum, amen, a way to support the empire. The second distinguishing characteristic of Pergamum, amen, is that this city became the chief center of the imperial cult under the early empire. Caesar is Lord. This is the chief center of it was in Pergamum. Third, and most important for us today, in Pergamum, according to Gusdorf, the ruling Attilids had uniquely made science and literature an attribute of the power and glory of the state. For the first time, knowledge, science, took the form of a public institution subsidized by the prince. Scholars and scientists, this is all Gustorf, scholars and scientists were considered to be government officials and led a privileged life. This scholarship and science aimed at pushing out all reliance on the transcendent realm. It, according to Gustorf, inspired an attitude that makes human consciousness the alpha and omega of all thinking. Man is the measure of all things. The individual is the center of values. Pergamum was a culture that saw no limits to the reach of science. Okay? Among the pantheon of gods worshipped in Pergamum at the time of the New Testament, 
Asclepius Soter became the most fashionable deity of Pergamum. Because of the popularity of Asclepius, he became recognized as the representative deity of Pergamum. He was the god of the therapeutic healing art. He had a temple and a sacred precinct to which flocked many invalids for medical treatment, which they received partly from the god, this is all Gustorf, who revealed the method of cure in dreams, which the sufferers, when the sufferers slept in his sacred precinct. They also got some from the healings from the priests and the physicians. In Greek myth, Asclepius gained his knowledge through a serpent who licked Asclepius's ears and whispered to him the secret knowledge of healing. This is the serpent that licked Rousseau's ears. The rod of Asclepius, which is a serpent curled around a staff, remains the primary symbol of medicine today. I remember my father, who was a flight surgeon in World War II, had the, the rod of Asclepius on his collar as an insignia. But, okay, this is interesting. You know, at the time of, of the New Testament, uh, we have uh, the God of therapeutic healing, whose universal symbol was the serpent. It stood above Pergamum as its representative deity. That's very interesting. You know, so what? Well, John, in Revelations 2 and 13, records Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum and identifies something about Pergamum remarkable and actually unprecedented. He said, Pergamum, he identified it as the place of Satan's throne, the city where Satan lives. Pergamum was a place where Satan had perfected a strategy using science and scholarship to cauterize men's hearts so that the convicting word of God could not penetrate and he could therefore remain on his throne. The science, we're going to shift again, move forward. The scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th century saw a phenomenal gain of mastery over the physical realm. There's no doubt about it. Look at the technology that's come from it. Amen. It was, it was, it was stunning. It was so stunning that, like, Newton could predict with mathematical uh, precision uh, the, the gravity and, and orbits. Science could suddenly uh, predict eclipses. They could, uh, uh, they could tell the orbits. They could tell all of these things. They gained an incredible mastery over nature. On the heels of this astounding success came some who decided if science could gain such mastery over nature, why couldn't human behavior, both individually and socially, be subject to science as well? And through discovering what they thought would be laws governing social and psychological behavior, humankind could progress to a cultural utopia. And the sciences of man arose. Psychology, anthropology, sociology, economics, amen. 
But there's a major clue to the falsity of this claim that the sciences of man putting man who the Bible says has a free will and therefore morally accountable to put it under science there's a falsity to making an equation between the sciences of man and the physical sciences and I'd like to just give one clue the book demolishes the idea but just look at the founders of the relative spheres in the natural sciences the physical sciences Isaac Newton considered to be the most brilliant mind in physics until Einstein he was a devout Christian Michael Faraday formative in physics of uh, the physics of micro uh, electromagnetism a devout Christian James Clerk Maxwell devoutly Christian Einstein credited him with the major advances in electromechanics and one of the most brilliant scientific minds ever. He explicitly denied that man himself could be reduced to the scientific method. Robert Boyle, father of chemistry, spent a fortune on sending his entire fortune on sending missionaries, Christian missionaries to the east. Francis Bacon, who refined the scientific method of experimentation was a devout Christian. Johannes Kepler, so influential in astronomy, the same. Anton Lavoisier, so influential in chemistry and biology until the French Revolution cut his head off, was a devout Christian. Now let's look at the founders of the sciences of man. Wilhelm Wundt, considered the father of psychology, was raised by his Lutheran pastor and mentored by his church's assistant pastor. But after a serious illness, had a mystical experience and went on to establish psychology that explicitly rejected the notion of the Christian view of the immortal soul. He was thoroughly immersed in Darwinism, and his science of man was commonly called psychology without soul. He's considered the father. Sigmund Freud, so famous in the realm of psychology, was a virulent atheist who hated Christianity. Carl Jung, so influential in 20th century depth psychology, was a direct apostate and sought, wound up in his life seeking occult spiritual forces. August Kant, the father of sociology, hated Christian morality. The story of August Kahn in this book, it'll straighten your hair. It wanted, he wanted to replace religion, uh, Christianity with the religion of humanity. And that's an actual formal term. Emile Durkheim, who refined Kant's sociology, was a secularist who defined religion and morality without any reference to a transcendent God. Paul Broca considered the father of anthropology, was an ardent Darwinist and atheist who stated, I would rather be a transformed ape than a degenerate son of Adam. Margaret Mead, who popularized anthropology in the 20th century, was an amoral lesbian who sought to overthrow the boundaries of traditional moralities. We can see from the root that the sciences of man are not the mere extension of the physical sciences. You can, 
The laws that control an orbit are regular. People are not regular. They have free wills. Amen. Now, I want to make clear we're not against all science. Uh, it's limitless science that we are speaking against. Amen. And we don't condemn. I'm going to say some things here. We don't condemn all psychologists and all sociologists, but their institutions and methods come from a bad root and will at best fall short. Even those who profess Christianity, they'll fall short of what they desire. And for those who have no faith in God, listen, seek any help that you can get, okay? Amen. Whatever you do have faith in. But the bottom line is, for those that are desiring to forward God's kingdom, we need to understand what's going on here. Amen. Because the devil's at work in trying to insert this scientific view of man into the church. In the fraudulent sciences of man, we're just going to mention Freud here and psychotherapy. In Freud's view, and I realize there are other uh, forms of psychotherapy. Amen. In Freud's view, the intellect and the mind, this is a quote from him, the intellect and the mind are objects for scientific research in exactly the same way that as any non-human things. Psychoanalysis has a special right to speak for the scientific world view. In correspondence between Freud and Oscar Pfister, Pfister wrote very approvingly of the rise, he was a, a secularized pastor, Pfister was, of the rise, he wrote approvingly of the rise of, of psychotherapy. He told Freud, undoubtedly the cure of souls, which it was an archaic term that meant uh, the pastor, cure, like the Roman Catholic Church has curates, uh, that just means a pastor, that's what they used to call it, cure of souls. Undoubtedly, the cure of souls will one day be a recognized non-ecclesiastical and even non-religious calling. Thomas Sass, the psychiatrist, asserts, Freud realized that the great legitimizer of the age wasn't religion, but science. So he had resisted any overt connections between religion and psychoanalysis and instead said psychotherapy was a science. Yet Freud did eventually apologize to Pfister for failing to admit that psychoanalysis and the cure of souls, that is pastoring, would indeed merge. Freud asserted in his essay on lay analysis that the words secular pastoral worker might well serve as a general formula for describing the function of the therapist. Such activities as this is pastoral work in the best sense of the word. Saz concludes, the sufferer comes to the psychotherapist and brings with him the moral problems of life. The psychotherapist is a secular pastor engaged in the cure of souls. The goal of those who founded the psychotherapeutic revolution was to eliminate religious-based pastoring. Now, Freud was an apostate. He carefully crafted this image of himself as completely free from religious influences. But his father was once an Orthodox Jew, 
and read the Torah his entire life. His mother uh, was a practicing Orthodox Jew uh, throughout her entire life until she died in the 1930s. His wife's grandfather was the chief rabbi of Hamburg. He was brought up with biblical morality completely surrounding him. Amen. But he also proved that he really was, was trying to react against something is found in, the, in his obsession at the end of his life to complete his last book. One of the most influential 20th century psychologists, Andre Baruch, explains that Freud's last book, Moses and Monotheism, is, quote, dominated by the idea of the spread of psychoanalysis and the destruction of religion, particularly Christianity. Freud's criticism of religion were above all directed, Baruch says, at Christianity. In short, Freud was an apostate from biblical morality. Amen. And his big, Freud's big point, and there's other views that have come up in psychology, but his big point is you're not really responding and doing the things you want to do because you choose them. It's because you're dynamic subconscious you know, some childhood trauma or something like that directs you. Amen. And so it relieved people of the sense of moral guilt. That's why he became so popular. Philip Reef, University of Pennsylvania, asserted in his highly acclaimed book on Freud that through this scientific disguise, Freud created the masterwork of the century, and his doctrine has changed the course of Western intellectual history. Reef, writing in the 60s, 1960s, could call Freud's writings perhaps the most important body of thought committed to paper in the 20th century. It completely changed people's thinking. And let me tell you, even amongst professing Christians, some of us in this room do not realize how much it has affected us. Amen. The late Princeton philosophy professor and humanist Walter Kaufman said that, quote, Freud took away the sense of guilt. Freud was one of the most remarkable human beings of all time. Freud, Kaufman claims, restored to us an innocence that we lost thousands of years ago. What's he talking about? Thousands of year, years ago, the Bible <laughs> convicted, the word of God convicted people. But now he's restored an innocence to us as we realize it's not really us that's doing it. Kaufman says, Freud took away the sense of guilt that poisoned not only sexuality but many other wishes. Freud to Kaufman was a new Adam and through his transformation we are transformed. Amen. Now, he, he could only gain this influence because there had been this, this uh, transformation of human thought accepting science as a God term because that's what he was presenting was a scientific way to view human nature. Isn't it terrible that all this is happening in the world? It is. But the problem is it's happening in the church. Tim Stafford writing in Christianity Today on the therapeutic revolution. Christianity Today is the most influential, widely read uh, uh, publication for the evangelical church world. 
He's writing and he asserted thousands of professionals have staked their careers on Christian counseling and thousands more are pointed in that direction. Already psychology, he says, has transformed the church and it will continue to do so. The question is whether the ultimate end will be good. He says, the most influential evangelical publication says, there's a transformation that's come to the church. Now, he doesn't know whether it's going to be good or bad. Open detractors of Christianity have no trouble discerning whether it will be good for the church. For they see the significance of injecting into the church psychological theory, which ultimately cuts off repentance. Dr. Edmund E. Coyne, staunch humanist, critic of Christianity, has observed that approaches, this is all quotes from him, which mix contemporary mental health lore with born-again theology now constitute the born-again movement's leading edge. Coyne states that by far the most striking contemporary development within the born-again Christian subculture is the rise to prominence of the fundamentalist, and he did, by fundamentalist he just means somebody who believes in the Bible, the rise of fundamentalist Christian psychiatric inpatient programs, Menrith Meyer, Rafa, New Life Clinics, things like that. Coyne zeroes in on the book Toxic Faith. That was a book written by an evangelical uh, that was evangelizing not the gospel, but we need psychology in the church. And uh, he zeroes in on that. And much to his pleasure, Cohen points out that this book is an unwitting indictment of born-again living. The authors seem oblivious to their methods' far-reaching implications. By making contemporary mental health lore the controlling criteria, having that lore determine what the Bible demands and does not demand from born-again believers... The basic principle of trusting and obeying the Bible is reduced to a farce. Cohen says the clients of Christian psychotherapy centers would no, light, no, would no doubt be chagrined to find out how much of their parlance is lifted directly from secular mental health sources. There is much talk about self-esteem, addiction, codependency, dysfunctional families. Cohen concludes... These programs put out an unending stream of invective against humanists, secularists, and liberal intellectuals. They sound like they're real conservative Christians. That makes their resort to distinctively secular and humanistic methods and their finessing that crucial point with their followers quite ironic. Cohen clearly sees that pastors are being replaced by psychotherapists, even if the church remains oblivious and can't even tell that the two cannot be reconciled because one is based on a convicting word, you have done this. The other is, is putting you in a scientific framework to where prior causes are the root. Years ago, the Czechoslovakian dissident Radomir Hubilek wrote to the then communist government at the risk of his life. His daring words declared that the baseness of a lie is revealed in the fact 
that it must parasitically rely on another's trust in the truth to accomplish its purpose. He says, the addressee of the lie must be convinced that the liar is telling the truth. If someone comes up to you and you, you don't trust him and he tells you a lie, it's not going to have any effect on you. Is that true? The lie has to depend on a person's trust that someone's telling the truth. That's why he says it's a, it's a parasite. Amen. Truth does not need a lie, but a lie cannot live without the very truth it seeks to deny. From this premise, Hubelet contends that a lie is not the direct opposite of the truth, but it's more or less foul-smelling substitute. The lie parasitically lives off the truth and sucks the life out of it. Keep that thought. I want to now read to you what licensed professional psychotherapists, these are actually medical doctors, psychiatrists, as they describe how the psychotherapeutic method works. Amen. A lie lives off the truth. Okay? Amen. The International Journal of Psych... It's almost like these guys are... You know how magicians, every once in a while, they'll, uh, they'll pull the curtain back and show you how they do the trick? That's what these guys... I don't know if they knew what they were doing, but this is what they do. The International Journal of Psychiatry, in it, the very influential psychologist, Professor Hans Strupp, revealed that, quote, all modern conceptions of psychotherapy rest on the notion that the patient can be changed using the forces operating in a good human relationship. This good human relationship struck specif specifically identifies as the parent-child relationship, fathering authority, amen, personal authority. Psychotherapy, Strupp contends, is potentially useful when the client has retained response to parental type influences, personal, honest, face-to-face, -face. amen. And it is essentially futile when such receptivity has either neither existed or has been severely frustrated. Indeed, it may be laid down that short of coercive measures, it is the only base this trust in parent-child relationship is the only base from which a person's behavior can be significantly influenced. Strupp contends that Freud's genius lay in his ingenious design of an analogous relationship between the therapist and the client, which on the one hand takes full advantage of the power of the parent-child situation and on the other hand, uses that relationship to induce the client to outgrow his need for it. You don't need fathering authority. You just need science. Amen. Do you see the lie working off what is the truth? Amen. Amen. The therapist, the therapist, he says, in this therapy, it is possible to use, this is all quotes from him, such a relationship 
the parent-child relationship for the purpose of producing corrections in the deeply rooted substrate of man when coupled with the skillful management, yes, manipulation, Strupp's words, of the parent-child relationship as it manifests itself in the here and now. The therapist poses in the place of the father and mother and in this reinstituted parent-child relationship, Strupp reveals that a matrix of virtually unequal power has been created. Amen. Amen. There is a fundamental dynamic that psychotherapy is taking, making use of. Trust, honor, all these things. They're just being misplaced. Vanderbilt professor of psychology, Kenneth Calestro, cites numerous studies which concludes that psychotherapy, in fact, constitutes and makes use of all the dynamics of faith healing, but within a culture defined by scientific rather than religious presuppositions. Psychotherapy really isn't truly scientific in the sense of, of the physical sciences, but instead, it operates only within a scientific worldview, and in that view, it remains the most plausible way to well-being. Modern scientific psychotherapy in that culture is simply the culture of Pergamum revived. Cholesterol, like Strupp, underscores that suggestibility, trust, and hope seem to be major factors in the outcome of any variety of therapeutic encounter. The therapeutic success, this is him speaking, has been due to the undefined emotional rapport between ther the therapist and the patient. Amen. And the probability of cure depends not upon, this is, this is him speaking, the probability of cure depends not on the correctness of the diagnosis or treatment, but rather upon the persuasibility and suggestibility within the rapport between physician and patient. Amen. The correctness of any given analytic interpretation is not its most potential attribute. What is most important is that the interpretation, he says, offers the patient some explanation for otherwise mysterious events and is offered by a figure of some importance to him. Amen. Cholestero cites studies which conclude that it is not so much the insight a patient re receives that cures him, but the fact that he is receiving a type of therapy that he believes is designed to help him. Amen. Cholesterol explains, I'm just about done. Cholesterol explains that the therapist's myth includes two factors, the patient's expectancy of help and the therapist's belief that he can be a source of such help. Unlike previous faith, faith healers, though, the psychotherapist doesn't believe in religious principles but scientific principles. And so he believes that he can cure the individual through certain systematic and scientific principles, discovering prior causes, and therefore the psychotherapist believes that these principles can be used in correcting the psychological difficulties. Yet this scientific claim is, in cholesterol's term, 
simply the faith of the psychotherapist that he can heal according to whatever scientific principles he's been taught. The other side of the therapist's myth, the patient's expectancy of help, is essentially a response to the therapist's therapeutic presence, a response to the therapist's belief that he can help. The therapeutic presence, according to Colestro, which serves as the patient's object of faith, becomes reinforced by an assortment of indirect, though observable, evidence that the therapist has unique abilities and powers. He cites that belief in the, therapy, the therapist's capability is reinforced by an impressive office, an assortment of academic degrees. That's a real big one. Professional reputation and even a patient waiting list. All of these accoutrements of licensed professionalism build the faith of the patient and the therapist, ripening the atmosphere for a scientific faith healing. Amen. The therapist becomes seen as an expert, licensed and certified, one who can speak with authority. Amen. He says that in the aura of this therapeutic presence, a change of perspective, an existential shift in basic outlook occurs within the patient that offers new interpretations for hitherto for mysterious phenomena. Aaron Wall states that when this existential shift, which just means you start agreeing with the therapist, he says that when this existential shift does not occur, no cure follows. Cholestro discards all other explanations for this failure and targets instead the patient's inadequate socialization, his failure to participate in the assumptive world on which the therapist's personal myth is based. That is, they have not been indoctrinated with the same scientific principles believed to govern temporal events. Amen. It only works if you buy into it. And even then, it only works by relieving guilt. Amen. The psychotherapist gives supposed insight into first causes. Cholesterol says this recreates the parent-child relationship. And it provides the reordering of the patient's fundamental outlook. Just as parents provide the child with his first real understanding of the world. Amen. Amen. It is a reinstituting of the parent-child relationship. Psychotherapy is a substitute for fathering parental relationships that are supposed to identify the church for what it is. It lives off of that relationship. Did that, was that clear? Amen. Amen. It's a lie. <laughs> Amen. But it lives off of people believing and trusting. Amen. Amen. Cholesterol describes this therapeutic session as a transition from what Eliade has called profane time 
into sacred time. The therapy session becomes the sacred time with all concurrent heightened awareness and sensitivity in the patient because it provides a break in the mundane patterns of daily routines in the patient. Cholesterol concludes then, psychotherapy creates an almost, and I think I could scratch almost, creates an almost religious atmosphere in which psychic mysteries are revealed and reordered to be appropriately manifested in the world outside of therapy. In other words, a visit to the therapist is like attending church or synagogue. Amen. Scientific psychotherapy is not the opposite of pastoral ministry. It's worse than that. It's his foul-smelling substitute. It's a lie, and it's a lie that can only deliver us from guilty feelings. But like we say, it has invaded the church. We saw Calestro say that the, the scientists goaded the church into relinquishing the, the willingness to speak the convicting word of God. Amen. We saw Cohen mock these people who, who unwittingly are in, inserting something that's going to destroy the church. Philip Reef says in his seminal study that all attempts at connecting the doctrines of psychotherapy with the old faiths are patently misconceived. For these two approaches are not peripherally but fundamentally and essentially irreconcilable. Reef points out that at its most innocuous, these psychotherapeutic religiosities, those who attempt to hybridize the two, represent a failure of nerve by both the psychotherapists and clergymen. Reef further indicts the church for this compromise, asserting the best among them appear engaged in a desperate strategy of acceptance in the hope that they will be accepted by the world. We're so much more reasonable than these old pastors who used to pin us with sin. Amen. Reef says that the apologetic efforts in pretending that renunciation, that is, dying to self, was never dominant in the system of the church, and that is in the church now. Seeker-friendly churches? Amen. Amen reflect a strange mixture of cowardice and courage with which they are participating in the dissolution of their cultural functions. They are, they're destroying the purpose of a pastor. Amen. God's ministers should be exposing and confronting the fallen nature. But the new gospel offered by Christian assimilationists to psychology is a deathless gospel. And once the church has abdicated Christ's crown, his authority to convict, the church has abandoned its cultural function as the salt of the earth. Amen. The church does not need the world. The world needs the church. The church has outsourced life. The world teaches the church's children it provides its food. It takes care of its health needs, even its childbirth. And now it's attempting to outsource its pastoral ministry. And we need to say no. Amen. Amen. And we need to have the courage to speak the anointed word of God, which is the only pathway out for any of us. Amen. 
if any of this seems like, oh, what, what, you know, let me tell you, this is far in the most conservative, spirit-filled churches, they are succumbing to the psychotherapeutic myth. They're not, I mean, some of the most prominent of these churches, I mean, going and blowing big-time churches, they won't even pastor a person anymore. This may sound just absolutely absurd to y'all here, but I'm telling you it's the truth. They send them all to licensed psychotherapists now. Amen. We need to be willing, like Brother Zach said, we need to be willing to receive that word even when it says you have crucified the Lord of glory. Amen. Amen. Because when we see our human nature, we find the way out. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Please. A question, a follow-up on Pergamum. Um, you said that the book of Revelations identified Pergamum as the throne of Satan and the place where Satan lived. Yes. And that it was unique for being the first place where the state sponsored science yes. and a healing system was established under a God whose name I'm glad to forget. Asclepius Soter. Oh. It literally means Asclepius the Savior. That's what it means. Asclepius the Savior, and he, his ear was tickled by the snake. Could, could you tell how Pergamum was viewed by the Third Reich, just briefly? Well, when, I don't know if y'all know, but you know, in World War I, Kaiser Wilhelm was actually the grandson of Queen Victoria in Britain. Germany and Britain didn't used to be enemies like they were in World War I, World War II. And uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was really upset that uh, Britain had the uh, Museum of Egyptology, the British Museum, and they had all these archaeological treasures going, and everybody was looking to Britain as being, wow, they are so smart, and they've learned all this history and everything. And so he sent and paid for a whole crew of archaeologists to go over to the Middle East and dig up some things of his own. Well, Britain, Britain had already gotten most of the stuff out of Egypt, and so they started digging around Pergamum. And they dug up the entire old city, because the city isn't really there anymore, and they took the, the, the whole altar there, the main altar, of Pergamum, these massive structures, they dug them up, marked all the things, came back to Berlin, built this incredibly huge building, freestanding building, and rebuilt the altars of Pergamum inside of this building. You can actually still go to it today, believe it or not. And it was going to be the representative. They... The, the whole racial thing with the Jews, they, they had it all worked out from Darwinism and everything. It was limitless science. It was a scientific, rational program. And it was, they had chosen of all the places to rebuild Pergamum right in the middle of Berlin. And it had more effect symbolically on them than they could imagine. Do you see that if Pergamum was unique for those facets that you listed and it was called the throne of Satan, do you tie that to 
he will set himself up in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, and that that Antichrist spirit is enthroned in the temple or the church of God through the Pergamum dynamic that Revelation's identified as the throne of Satan? Yes. <laughs> Amen. I think we're out of time. <laughs>